Amos 3, we'll begin in verse 9. Now hear God's word. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, and see the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord God, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. This is God's word. Let us pray together as we come to consider this powerful piece of God's Word. Our God and our Father, again be with us this morning as we come to Your Holy Word, which is living and active, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, which pierces us into the very core depths of our being in order to expose that within us to which we must give an account before You. And so, Father, would you help us this morning to understand, Holy Spirit, illuminate the meaning of this text to our minds. And as ever, Father, we ask that you would give us, by your grace, the ability to not just be hearers of the word, but more and more, as James urges us, doers of the word, people who live their lives in conformity with all of the wisdom and truth that you reveal here. So, Father, may the May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts today be pleasing in your sight, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as I was reading this text, even as I just jumped in and started reading through it several times this past week, there were two phrases that stood out to me right away. One of them is that statement there in verse 10, which I took for the title of the sermon, where the Lord says, they do not know how to do what is right. That's kind of a a summary statement of God's divine diagnosis of the sin-corrupted hearts and minds and the seared consciences of His own people of Israel. And that's going to be a big part of our main focus today in these verses. How the corrupting effects of human sin affect our minds and the reasoning powers even of human beings and lead to increasing irrationality in the life and foolishness in the life. And the other other statement that leapt out at me immediately as I was just reading through the verses before actually starting to study it, even as I just gave it a cursory kind of overview, the other statement is that one in the next verse, verse 11, where God says, 
therefore, right, because they do not know how to do what is right, because the sin of their hearts has, has seared their consciences and led to growing foolishness in their lives, therefore, an adversary shall surround the land. An adversary, an, an, an enemy, will stand against them because of their sin. And of course, the, the first thing that you think of when God is talking this way in terms of judgment and saying that an enemy is going to come against them, you think about the, the human agency, right? The earthly enemies of Israel that God is going to sovereignly use as instruments of judgment, like the Assyrians, like the, the Babylonians, right? Those are the enemies, those are the adversaries that are going to surround them and, and, and that God's going to use as instruments of judgment against the people because of their sin. And that's true enough, but also, also this. The terrible truth that God's Word also reveals is that through human sinfulness and rebellion against Him, God Himself becomes the adversary of sinners. And that's a very, very unpopular thing to say these days. It's a very unpopular truth in our modern sort of hyper-egalitarian society to tell people. There's a right way and there's a wrong way to live and God's the one who decides. And if you choose the wrong way, you make yourself his enemy, and he sets himself against you as an adversary. Nobody wants to hear that. But it is absolutely what the Bible clearly reveals from Old Testament to New. Sinful people are alienated from God. Sinful people are hostile towards God in their minds. Colossians 1.21 says with absolute clarity. Such, a, such an antithesis exists between the sinful world and the kingdom of God that James says that friendship with the world is the same thing as enmity with God. You're either for Him or against Him, Jesus Himself says. And of course, Paul himself declares in Romans 5 that the very essence of the gospel, the good news is that in the unfathomable love of God, He sent His only begotten Son to die in order to redeem us who were God's enemies. Not just people who were neutral morally or who were worth something to Him, but people who were at enmity with Him. The love of Christ is shown in all of its greatness and fullness because He died for His enemies. That is the nature of our sin from which we have been saved. It doesn't just cause a, a falling out between us and God where we're not on super friendly terms anymore, right? It, it doesn't just cause an un, uncomfortable estrangement from the one who made us in his image. Sin brings about an active hostility and enmity between us and God, be, between God and all sinners. And you do not want God being your adversary. 
And it's in this sense, I think, that God is speaking here in Amos chapter 3 and verse 11 in this whole passage. This is how He's speaking to Israel. He's saying to them that because of their sin, He, the eternal God, the Almighty God, right? The omnipotent God, the One who chose them, the One who loved them, the One who gave so much to them for centuries of their history, now He has become their adversary. And this passage is so instructive for us because God reveals here several key foundational ways in which human sinfulness does that, in which human sinfulness creates alienation from God and enmity with God, puts us in an adversarial relationship with God and invites His hostility These verses highlight three key ways that sin does that. They teach us that sin disrupts our devotion to one another as fellow human beings made in God's image. Secondly, these verses teach us that sin destroys our devotion to God, our our Maker, our Creator, our Lord. And then thirdly, sin distorts our devotion to the truth that He has revealed. And all of this, as we're going to see, helps us to know as His people, as His redeemed ones who have been reconciled to Him in Christ Jesus, as His church, all of this helps us to know how to stand firm against the corrupting power of sinfulness in our society, in the world around us, in our own personal lives in the church, and how to call people out of that corruption. How to call people away from enmity with God. To turn away from the sin that invites God's adversity. And to turn to Him who reconciles sinners to Himself in Christ Jesus in repentance and faith. So, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at the rest of Amos chapter 3 together today, and we're going to focus on on these three emphases of how sin does all this, how sin disrupts devotion to one another, our fellow humans, how sin destroys devotion to God, and how sin distorts devotion to truth. You can see here, if you look at these verses between verse 9 and 16, how there are some natural divisions in the text which are indicated by by speech words. Verse 9, the word proclaim marks out one of the main emphases in this section. In verse 12, there's another one identified by the phrase, thus says the Lord. He's, he's, He's speaking the second message there. And again in verse 13, God calls His people to hear His word. And in each of those sections, we find a particular way in which the corrupting influences of human sin causes enmity with God and invites His response as an adversary. And as always, the urgent plea is for repentance. So the first one is this. It's in verses 9 through 11. Forgive me this morning, my throat's a bit dry from an illness. But bear with me if my voice is cracking. The first one is this, verses 9 through 11. Human sinfulness disrupts 
devotion between human beings, relationships between human beings. God made us in His own image, and God is a triune being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one being, one essence, but three distinct persons living in eternal harmony one with another. And in His image, He made us to be relational beings also and to live in harmony one with each other. Mutual, selfless love, graciousness, kindness, unity, peace. All of the things that, that mark the intertrinitarian union are supposed to mark the human race. But, just look at history, right? From the fall and the garden on, the history of the human race is absolutely characterized by an endless series of disruptions to divinely designed peace. Right from the very start, when sinful selfishness and greed and envy came into this world through Adam and Eve, their first children, Cain and Abel, were at enmity with each other. And Cain killed his brother Abel. And then down through the history of the first generations of men in Genesis, they began, it says, to fashion weapons to use in order to shed the blood of one another. And all throughout history, Old Testament history, New Testament history, history recorded outside of the Scriptures, the corrupting effects of human sinfulness have set man against his fellow man in enmity, in hostility, in every conceivable kind of way. Theft, people taking and and stealing from one another, violence, bigotry, slavery, oppression, murder, Human sinfulness disrupts devotion to one another in families, in societies, in the world at large, all throughout history. And the triune God who made us in His image to be at peace with one another, He despises this hostility that exists between human beings. He hates it. So here in verses 9 through 11, it's expressed through these words that we see in these three verses. The word tumults in verse 9. The word oppression also there in verse 9. And the words violence and robbery in verse 10. This is how people are treating each other. This is the first way that God identifies the corrupting power of sin manifesting itself in Israelite society, which God is standing against as an adversary. I won't put up with this, he's saying. The word tumult means an uproar, a commotion, a calamity, fights, quarrels, riots, wars. Those are all kinds of things that fall under the category of tumults. Calamities of varying degrees between human beings made in the image of God. It indicates a selfish, sinful disregard for the proper order of the fabric of society. That's what a tumult is. God made it to operate a certain way, and when it gets disrupted, that's a tumult. And the other words in this list, uh, oppression, violence, robbery... Those are just simply some of the specific ways in which human sin manifests itself in selfish, 
unjust ways toward one another, when people are not living graciously towards each other, but instead selfishly. And from the history of Israel, we know that God wasn't just reacting toward the ways that individuals treated other individuals in the Israelite society. These kinds of things were endemic to the whole society itself, right? Oppression, violence, that extended all the way up to the top. This was systemic. It came and characterized the, the whole nation and society. Together they had all become so committed to self that they were completely unconcerned with one another. And even though the kinds of things they were doing were disruptive, inherently disruptive to the peacefulness of the society, they didn't care enough to stop doing them. So long as their selfish, greedy desires were being met and satisfied. That's how human sin is. It's stupid. It allows itself to do things. It justifies itself in doing things that make messes, that destroy, that tear apart, as long as it gets what it wants. So these people in Israel, they weren't living the way they were created by God to live in relationship with one another. And the Old Testament law, as you know, is packed full of instructions about how mercy and kindness and graciousness and selfless love were supposed to be applied in, in every conceivable circumstance to govern a, a harmonious peace between God's people in Israel and even between them and their neighbors. And of course, if you want to know what it looks like for a human being to live in absolute accordance with God's design, according to God's purposes and righteousness and law, in peaceful, righteous, harmonious relationship to other human beings, then, then all you got to do is look at the life of Jesus Christ, who is all the fullness of God in bodily form, who is the only fully sinless human being to ever live in this world, uncorrupted by any effect of sin in the way that he lived and who came here not to be served by others, but to serve and to the extent of giving up his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did nothing ever from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Remember Paul's words in Philippians? He wasn't driven by pride. He wasn't driven by greed or, or sinful selfishness. But in humility, he counted others more significant than himself because that's what God does when he takes on human flesh. And it's what we're supposed to do. It's what we were made in his image to do. Jesus looked not only to his own interests, the interests of others, and Jesus followed a, a, a life of a, a principle of self-sacrificing humility and servanthood he followed that all the way to the cross because that's what God designed sinless, image-bearing humanity is designed to be. It's designed to be humble and selfless and sacrificial and servant-like and cost-counting for the sake of others 
Greater love has no man than that he is willing to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said in John 15, verse 13, and then he did it. And again, not just for his friends, no. God showed the depth of his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were yet his enemies, Jesus Christ died for us. That's what Romans 5, verses 6 through 10 proclaims so clearly. This is the God who made all human beings in his image, who, who, who designed us all to live in this same way towards one another. This is how relationships should look. This is how marriages should look. This is how societies should look. But in Israel, among his people that he had loved so much and given so much to, these people were living precisely the opposite way. They were not living in selfless, sacrificial, gracious, loving, caring, harmony, and unity, and peace. They were living in selfish, greedy, oppression, and violence. In verse 10, this statement that I think bears so much significance, God says that living this way, living contrary to the design, living contrary to His nature and His revealed will, that doing that, in fact, induces spiritual blindness. You know how there's certain things in your life that you can do that, that affect your eyesight in a negative way, that induce blindness, and so you're not supposed to do those things, right? Parents are always telling their kids not to sit too close to the TV, right? Because it's going to strain their eyes. Don't watch too much TV because it's going to strain their eyes. It's going to wreck their eyesight, right? And now, now we've got these VR goggles. Literally, we've got little TVs that you actually strap to your face. And, and, and they, they sit around all day playing video games with these things strapped to their heads. There's, there's certain things that you can do that can induce blindness, and so you're not supposed to do them. Well, the same thing is true spiritually, see? And this is what God means as He's decrying the greed and oppression and violence in the society there. And then He says, they don't know how to do what's right. It's like they're blind by their own sin. We say, well, what do you... What do you what does he mean they don't know how? How can they not know how to do what's right? Right? I mean, God, God has written his law on every single human conscience. We've already seen that from chapter 1. Paul clearly says that in Romans chapter 2. The, the work of the law is written on their hearts. Paul says about Gentile nations who have never heard the word of God. Still, the law of God's written on their consciences. Everything that God defines as good and right and true and beautiful, written on every image-bearing human conscience. So no one has an excuse for acting contrary to God. Don't, no one can say, well, I didn't understand. I didn't know. The reason humans don't know how to do what's right isn't ignorance. It's sinful disobedience and suppression to the truth and willingly exchanging it for lies, which induces spiritual blindness. It's choosing to, to follow their own depraved, sinful passions rather than honoring God, who made His 
invisible attributes and divine nature and eternal power known in all of creation, right? But we ignore it. And when we do, we become blind to it. And he, on top of that, God had revealed to Israel very specifically through Moses, through the prophets, in the scriptures, he had revealed his law in pain. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. They knew, but they didn't do. They suppressed the truth. They acted according to their own selfish, prideful, sinful desires. They went astray. They did what was right in their own eyes. They induced spiritual blindness more and more and more in their souls and became more and more ridiculous and foolish in the destructive ways that they lived. Here's what one scholar, E.B. Pusey, he says, It is part of the miserable blindness of sin that while the soul acquires a quick insight into evil, it becomes at last not only paralyzed in doing good, but unable even to perceive what good is. Man, I mean, are you, are you, are you going like I do? That's what's happening in the world today, right? All around us. Spiritual blindness. Because of a, a stubborn refusal to do things God's way. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, right? As it was before, so it continues to be now, today, where people who are looked up to as being, as being the intellects of our society, the smart ones among us, right? They, but they've become so corrupted by sin and so darkened in their understanding, so blinded to truth that they will fight tooth and nail for a woman's right to murder her child. And at the same time, they will say, here's what's good and virtuous for our society. Let's bring drag queens into public libraries to read sexually explicit literature to little kids. That's what's going to be good for our society, they say. They're so eager to give approval to evil that they willfully ignore the clear and obvious destructive impact of things like these on our society. The LGBTQ plus agenda has become so, so shrill in its demands to be the ones who define what justice is and what goodness is in our society. And, and people are so eager to let them have that role and to embrace that agenda that, that they're willing to insist that it's good for people and it's good for society, for, for people's bodies to be literally mutilated. And for their minds to be destroyed literally by, by chemical alteration through gender reassignment surgery. Which, which is being now promoted in our country actively and in, in, in increasingly to, to children in public schools. Maybe you should try this. Sin has become so corrosive that we do not know how to do what's right and so we're just becoming stupider and stupider. And the results are always inherently destructive to lives and to families and societies. When you do things contrary to the design, they don't work right and bad things happen. Right? 
That's true with power tools. That's true. Chuck Freeman told me a story once about how he came here to do some work at a church and he brought his his corded drill, 110-volt drill, and he plugged it into a 110-volt outlet. And he fired up that drill and it went and started sparking and smoking because somebody had wired a 220 line to that 110 outlet. And bad things happen, right? The first time I came and looked at this baptistry, which we fill full of water and heat, now it's got a real proper heater in there. But you know what it used to be? It used to be a big (laughs) two-by-four with a piece of rebar tacked to it and, again, an electrical cord welded to it. And you plug it in and drop it in, and it heats up the water. See, we all go, no, 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 no. There's a way things are designed to work, and when you don't do it that way, bad things happen. But, but people sometimes are so dumb that they insist on doing things in foolishness, and, and, and destructive things happen. Who gets, to, who gets to be the one to pull the heater out before we get in there and baptize, right? Uh, don't go anywhere near that. So, do you understand the therefore in verse 11, Right? This is how they've lived in wanton, foolish, selfishness and destructive injustice and ungraciousness towards one another. So there's this therefore, right? And and the point of the therefore is this. When you do it that way, bad things happen. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. If you pursue destructive behavior, by it will you be destroyed. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your stronghold shall be plundered. You treat one another this way and you build your society on those principles and and this is how it's going to go for you too. There's a natural order to things in this world that God has designed and there are consequences that come from setting ourselves against the sovereign rule and will and law of the God who reigns over this world. You notice in verse 10 where Amos talks about them storing things up in their strongholds. He doesn't just say that through violence and robbery they're storing stuff up, like like the plunder that they gain through violence and robbery. It's partly that, but, but actually what the words technically say is that they're storing up the violence and the robbery. It's like they're putting that in the storehouses and then that's what's going to feed them. That's what's going to come and destroy them. They're they're hoarding for themselves the means by which they'll bring about their own destruction. And the Bible reveals this over and over, right? There's this this kind of boomerang effect to sin. You sling it out there and then it comes back and smacks you in the face. What goes around comes around. If a man sheds another man's blood, then by a man shall his blood be shed. Human sin. Sin induces spiritual blindness and always and inherently is destructive to human lives and relationships and societies and the world at large. And notice, too, that in this emphasis on how sin disrupts devotion to one another as human beings, that that in proclaiming his judgment on Israel for their sins against humanity, that in verse 9, he invokes the names of Ashdod and Egypt. Ashdod is Syria. This is perhaps God's 
cruelest cut of all. Ashdod and Egypt are their, some of their oldest enemies. And, and I think God seems to me to be saying here that these are the ones who are going to sit in judgment for Israel because of how bad Israel's sin is. You guys are so far gone from my will that people like the Egyptians are going to sit in judgment over you. That's humiliating, right? And we saw this back in chapter 1. Even though those unbelieving pagan Gentile nations were, were guilty themselves of all of these same kinds of sins... How much worse was it for Israel in chapter 2? How much more culpability did they have because they had been given so much by God? And so God seems to be saying that as, as bad as Syria's and Egypt's sins were, there's this sense in which by comparison, they're able to sit in judgment over Israel who, whose sin is even greater. If anyone should know how to do what is right, it should be Israel. If anyone should know how to love others selflessly, it should be Israel. How to be merciful and sacrificial and consider others as more significant to self, it should be the people of God because this is how God had been towards them. But in their sin and in their, in, in their self-induced spiritual blindness where they seared their consciences, they didn't know how to do what was right to their fellow man. And, and so the corruption of sin disrupted and devastated their devotion to one another as, as human beings. And then secondly, we've got we to keep going here, secondly, it destroyed their devotion to God. Verse 12. This is a challenging verse, I admit. God speaks a second time. He addresses a second way in which sin corrupts and sets them against Him in this relationship of enmity and he uses a word picture here it's a little parable we caught a glimpse of it last week as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or or a piece of an ear so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch or part of a bed what in the world does that mean <laughs> well last week we saw how in, in one sense those words are, are an indication of a little glimmer of hope for Israel, right? In the midst of this impending judgment that they're facing, the lion is roaring at them. There is this glimpse of, of a future rescue that this book and the rest of Scripture go on to proclaim. There's going to be judgment. It's going to be severe. They're going to get shredded, but God's also going to rescue and deliver them from the lion's teeth and preserve them still so there was that focus, um, but, but those, the focus of rescue is far off for Israel. Here, in the immediate sense, the picture has a much darker connotation. What in the world is he talking about couches and beds? So here's the thing. Follow me. In Exodus, the law of God required that if you were an under-shepherd... So the shepherd is the one who owns the flock and he hires you to be the night watchman, say, right? The under-shepherd who, who has the night watch over the sheep. If you're an under-shepherd and in the middle of the night you hear a big loud roaring noise and you think lion and then you, you hear scuffling and something bad's going on out there and you hear crunching and munching, you have a 
you have an inkling that one of the sheep got snatched by a lion, the law prescribed that you had to prove that a lion ate a sheep so that you weren't accused as the under-shepherd of just taking the sheep for yourself, right, and selling it or eating it or breeding it for your own profit and then saying, oh, a lion ate it. I don't know what happened. You, had to, you have to provide some evidence that the sheep had been eaten by the lion, and that's what the two legs or the piece of the ear are. You've got to bring that to the shepherd and say, look, it got torn up by this lion. So you had to bring back a piece of the remains, which identified it as a sheep. That's the picture. It's the, it's the picture of the remains that God is painting here in order to communicate something about the nature of Israel's sin. And the picture is simply this. You prove that one of the sheep got eaten by a lion by bringing some of the remains a leg, a piece of the ear, something characteristic of a sheep that identifies it as a sheep. So when Israel in the Old Testament gets devoured by the lion of God's wrath, what remains? What characterized them? What were they as a society recognized by? Was it stuff that evidenced a devotion to God? Maybe cultural artifacts that evidenced a strong devotion to Him, a love for Him, how the beauty of their holiness or His holiness was, was woven maybe through their art and through their literature so archaeologists could dig down and say, man, look how obsessed with Yahweh these people were. Is that, is that what evidenced Israelite society? Is that what characterized Israelite society? It's not. Here God says they're characterized by the corner of a couch and a part of a bed, and those are images that are supposed to depict their laziness and their immorality as a culture. That's what's left of them to show what they were all about. Sleep and ease, luxuriousness and licentiousness, indolence and indulgence. One, those are the words of one commentator to explain this picture. Those are the qualities that Israelite culture and society were known for. They weren't known for prayer. They weren't known for being devoted to the Word of God. They weren't known for heartfelt worship. They weren't known to be a people who died to self They weren't known to be a people who who made a lifestyle out of putting sin to death. They weren't known as being a society that was all about putting on the full armor of God and pursuing a lifelong discipline and battle for holiness. They weren't characterized by a life-defining devotion to God and to God's law and to God's holiness. They were characterized by a commitment and a life-defining devotion to self. To luxuriating in selfish, fleshly desires. To indulging the desires of their own hearts rather than tasting and seeing the goodness of God. So the couch and the bed signify their sluggardness and their sensualness. And in verse 15, God speaks about tearing down, look, their winter houses and summer houses and houses of ivory. 
Those are pictures of their worldliness. Those are pictures of their excess. Those are pictures of their wealth in this world. And it's not that, it's not that money is evil, right? Wealth isn't wicked. If you've got a lot of money, praise God. Just make sure you praise God as the giver. It's the love of money more than God that is the root of all types of evil. Paul warns Timothy, and he says it is through this craving for money in this world, more than anything, more than holiness, more than a devotion to God, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. It's not that they had lots of money. It's not even wrong that they had more than one house, a winter house and a summer house, right? That's not, it's not that they had fancy stuff in and of itself that's the problem. It's how they got it. Because they craved it more than they desired God and His holiness. And relating back to the first point that we just got done with, they got all their wealth, they got all their fancy stuff by stealing by oppressing, by exploiting, by taking advantage of others, by not loving, by not sharing, by not giving, by not caring. See, so they were not characterized by grace and mercy and self-sacrificing kindness and godly love. They were not characterized by a singular devotion to God Himself and a life-defining pursuit of holiness. Instead, they satisfied their souls on a regular basis with stuff other than God, especially immoral stuff, godless stuff, stuff that God hates. Immorality and adultery and pornography and all of that is what characterized them. Instead of a faithful devotion to Him, So now that they've turned away from him and said, I I don't want to be devoted to you because all of this stuff entices me more, now God is turning away from them and turning against them. And again, we can say there's nothing new under the sun, right? What's our society characterized by? What identifies this, this one nation under God where we live? Certainly not a devotion to God. Certainly not a devotion to God's Word. Not a devotion to God's law. Not a devotion to holiness. But it is a devotion to all kinds of worldliness and licentiousness and immorality. So what about us, Christians? Individuals redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, rescued, delivered from the wrath of God that is to come? We've got to ask ourselves what characterizes our lives as God's people. As people for whom God has done so much through Christ Jesus. What are we obsessed with? What are we consumed with? What, what marks us? How is the faithfulness of God? How is the law of God? The holiness of God? The goodness? The kindness? The love of God? How is all of that evidenced in our lives? Manifested in our lives? God would ask to us. He brings it all home now then in in the third thing. Verses 13 through 15 with this final emphasis and focus. 
Listen to the words here. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So here's what we've seen. The the corruption of sin has, first of all, in verses 9 through 11, disrupted and, and devastated their devotion to one another as fellow human beings in God's image. It has, secondly, verse 12, destroyed their devotion to Him as their Creator, as their Maker, as their God. And here, the corruption of sin has utterly and absolutely distorted their devotion to truth as God reveals it. It's the altars of Bethel that are in God's sights here. I will punish the altars, notice the plural, the altars of Bethel. Bethel means house of God. But there was more than one altar to lots of different gods. Bethel was the religious center of the northern kingdom of Israel after the kingdom was divided, remember, under Solomon's sons because of the idolatry that their father had allowed into the land because he wanted to have all those wives and all those concubines and he got them from all the pagan nations and with them came all the pagan gods, false gods. And that's how idolatry first got introduced into Israel. And so God split the kingdom north and south. And the first king of the north was Solomon's son, Jeroboam I. Now the temple where everyone was used to worshiping before that division was in Jerusalem, right? And Jerusalem was in the south. And so... When the kingdoms were divided, Jeroboam set up altars for worship in Bethel up in the north. It was the equivalent of Jerusalem for the northern kingdom where everybody was supposed to go worship if you were a part of Jeroboam's kingdom. But they were used to going to Jerusalem. They still wanted to go to Jerusalem. They, they planned and did. They, they made pilgrimage down there. And Jeroboam realized if they keep doing that, I have no basis for building a kingdom up here. So how am I going to entice them to worship in Bethel? He had to, to kind of wean their affections away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. Away from the dynasty of David. That's what he felt like he had to do, see? And so, politically, Jeroboam established a very different kind of kingdom, a very different kind of rule and reign from the one that David had established before. David's was a shepherding reign. David was a man after God's own heart. David cared in the midst of all of his weakness and flaws. He cared deeply for the people. And Jeroboam's kingdom was built on a completely different kind of ethic. Politically and religiously, he established a very different kind of religion in the north from 
the original worship in the temple in the south in Jerusalem where Yahweh was worshipped as the only God. Well, in Bethel, Yahweh was worshipped as one of many gods because they were progressive in the north. They were very multicultural, very egalitarian, very inclusive. And therefore, theologically, Jeroboam became a heretic. He he rebelled against the word of God in all kinds of ways and allowed it to be corrupted, diluted, polluted by having other false teachings and pagan worldviews and philosophies brought in and, and incorporated with the word of God until you got this big syncretistic garbage heap religion that was going on up in the north nothing new under the sun right (laughs) i mean here we are in 2023 in america in the church in america which has become very progressive and hyper egalitarian and mixed with every godless value of false religion and worldly philosophy, all together corrupting the truth, diluting the truth, polluting the revealed truth of God's inerrant word with all the fallen wisdom of the world that comes from sin-darkened, blind minds of people that suppress the truth and exchange it for lies and justify whatever seems right in their own eyes. That's what Jeroboam had done. He, 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 he started the northern kingdom on that footing, on that trajectory. And that's what defined them for their whole history. And that's what God despises and sets himself against as an adversary here. The devastation of their devotion to his revealed truth, which came by way of their unfaithfulness and godlessness and self-serving sin. You notice how God addresses them in this final section here in verse 13? He addresses them as the house of Jacob. He points all the way back to their roots, right? He's going, hey, you're not the people of Jeroboam. You're the people of Jacob. You're the sons of Israel. You're the one, you're the, you're the sons of the one who God blessed and who wrestled with God and whose name was changed to Israel by God. He was the son of Isaac. He was the promised son of Abraham. You are the people of God, not the people of Jeroboam, God is saying. You're my people. You're the people of my revealed word. You don't get to choose what gods you want to worship. God is saying, you don't get to choose how to worship. You worship the way I tell you and define pleases me and honors me and is in accordance with real holiness and righteousness. Because they were, these are the people of the word which God had revealed to them. They're not, they're not free to innovate. They're not, they're not free to, to invent their religion reimagine their theology according to popular opinion and what the world wants and demands and what corresponds with sinful fleshly lusts and desires. So God calls them the people of Jacob to remind them of all that and then notice also there in verse 13 how God refers to himself 
not just the Lord, all caps, right? Yahweh, the uncreated one, the self-sustaining one, the faithful one, the deliverer God who brought him out of Egypt. Moses met at the fiery bush. He's not just the Lord, he's the Lord God. And even more, he's the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. Boom, right? God says, here's who I am. I am the great I am. I am the uncreated, eternal maker of all things. I am the faithful one. I am the one who delivered you from Egypt. I am the only God who truly is. And I am the Lord of hosts. That means I am the sovereign one. I am the omnipotent one. I am the almighty ruler of everything. That's who He is. He's nothing less. That's whose people they are. But that's not how they live. It's not how they worship. Not according to the truth of who God is and what God has spoken. Instead, in their sinful rebellion against Him and rejection of Him, they have utterly distorted His truth and His word. They set up all kinds of altars to all kinds of idols. They rejected the worship of the one true Creator God and exchanged it with the worship of the creation now. Money and stuff. They bowed down to every imaginable image of false gods that had been carved and made by human hands. They rejected the worship of the invisible God and replaced it with a devotion to that which is visible. And they defiled themselves in the immorality of the pagan false worship. So so many of the pagan gods were devoted to fertility because they wanted plentiful families and plentiful crops. And you can imagine the satanic kinds of demonic kinds of immorality that that go along with, with pagan fertility cult worship. So they rejected what God calls moral and holy and good and they replaced it with a devotion to what is fleshly and earthly and immoral and godless and, and, and unclean. And in all of that, they, they were defining truth for themselves according to what seemed right in their own eyes. So their devotion was not to God's word, God's truth, but to what they decided they wanted their earthly material needs were. They wanted more than what God was given, basically. So they reinvented the system for themselves. And it's not like God had been stingy with them, right? God had promised them, God had given them and done for them far more abundantly than all that they could ever ask or think to ask for. He brought them out of Egypt through the wilderness, gave them the promised land, a future and a hope. And yet in their sin, they were greedy, they were discontent. They thought they would be better satisfied with what was visible than the invisible God himself. They thought they would be better satisfied with what was unholy than with the beauty of His holiness, than what was created instead of the Creator Himself. So all of that, the replacement of the invisible with the visible, the replacement of the Creator with the creature, the replacement of holiness with everything that is unholy, all of that happened in Israel 
very, very easily, see? It seemed sensible to them. It seemed reasonable to them in their spiritual blindness. It fit right in with national policy. Because because individually and as a society, the mind of man had taken the place of the mind and the revealed word and the truth of the Lord, the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. That's what we do in our sin. We say to God, I'll, I'll pick and choose what I think your word has for me. I'll come to it like a, like a farmer's market and I'll say, I'm not interested in this, but I'll take an abundance of this. I'll stand in judgment over your word. My mind will stand in judgment over your revealed mind. That's what we do in our sin. And whenever we do that, there's consequences. J. Alec Moitier says, heresy never stands idle. Truth matters. Ideas have consequences. False teaching, false religion produce false society. And false societies are dangerous. Like dropping rebar into a pool of water and plugging it into a wall. It's dangerous. The false religion, the false teaching produced a false society in Israel which was vulnerable to implosion under its, under its own weight. Because all their temples, all their altars, all the palaces of ivory, the fancy houses, the material wealth, all the abundance that they thought was an indication of their success and their strength, none of it grew out of, none of it was supported by a devotion to truth, a devotion to God. A devotion to one another. So there was, there was nothing holding it up. It was all destined to come crashing down. See? There is nothing new under the sun. We don't need to belabor here at the end of our time the parallels once again to our time. To our nation. To our society. The, the roots are all the same. The mind of sinful man has taken the place of the mind and the revealed word and the truth of the Lord God of hosts who is holy, holy, holy. And the societal results, no matter how good it looks from an earthly standpoint, they are unsustainable. We, we see it on the news once in a while, right? We go, great, everything's going great. What just happened to Silicon Valley Bank? Where'd that come from? It's unsustainable. Well, that's a speck of the kind of collapse that happens when, as a society, you make God your adversary. There is no firm foundation here. And the Lord God of hosts sets Himself against all who reject Him and reject His truth and reject His grace. Which brings us all back, as it always, always does, it brings us all the way back to Christ, who is the only firm foundation, who is all the fullness of deity in bodily form, who 
is the man in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the invisible God made visible. The only right object of worship. Jesus is the one who was in the beginning with God and was God. Jesus is the creator, the one by whom all things were made, the everlasting maker himself, the eternal son of God, through whom God has chosen to reveal himself. He is the living word. He is all the things that all of us are looking for in all the wrong places. He is the literal embodiment of divine grace and truth. And as a society, as a nation, we've all but rejected him. Jesus is the sovereign king. Jesus is the eternal savior. Jesus is and must be the Lord of our lives or else nothing else matters. Let's close there and pray with me as we do that the Holy Spirit will give us the conviction and the confidence and the courage to be as a, as a church and as Christians singularly and wholly devoted to Jesus and calling people to the same because there's no other foundation. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, praise you for your word. We thank you for revealing truth to us which no human being would ever invent or create or imagine which we all push against in our sinful inclinations of heart, but God, it is truth nonetheless. And we ask by your grace that in revealing this truth to us, you would foster and forge in us a devotion to you, to your truth, to one another, that would honor you and that would please you as you build your kingdom, which is not of this world, and call people out of darkness and into the marvelous light of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, may we be satisfied in all that He is and all that He has done, in the God who He is and the Lord of life who He is, and may He be the foundation of everything that we are and everything that we do. May we proclaim Him, may we honor Him, may we exalt Him, may we glorify Him, May we show him in all of his glory to the world. And may you be pleased to bring many to him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.